Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go to the Ave Maria CD archives and pull down a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. On January 12, 2013, Ave Maria Radio presented its first ever full-day conference, Catholic Witness in the Nation Divided. It was forced by the outcome of the November elections and all that they foretold. For those who have ever worked on large conferences, you know that this is hardly enough time to produce such a major event. But produce it they did. There were six major speakers, including the instigator, Al Cresta. The four session speakers were the USCCB's Kevin Appleby, Priest for Life's Father Frank Pavone, Notre Dame School of Law's Gerard Bradley, and Catholics for a Common Good's William May. The keynote speaker was Dr. Deal Hudson. The opening prayer was offered by Bishop Earl Boyer of the Diocese of Lansing. Each speaker was followed immediately by a panel discussion. The panelists were Father Robert Sirico, Dr. Monica Miller, Teresa Tomio, Dr. Michael New, Robert Hughes, Richard Thompson, Dr. Gregory Popchek, and David Grobel. Over 700 attendees filled the ballroom of Eastern Michigan University Student Center for what was a really full day that didn't end until 5.30 that afternoon. While the crowd was largely gray, there were a number of young adults and families. The babies were given a special measure of grace. There was very little crying heard. Our topic on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ is religious liberty. We all know that the federal administration, many politicians, the media, many educators, and many of the populace who think they are educated are in full-bore attack mode with the Christian religion and believers in their gun sites. On our program today, we'll hear Professor Gerard Bradley. His talk is titled, Present Peril to Religious Freedom. Stay tuned. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. The idea for the Catholic Witness Conference didn't come about until after the U.S. national elections last November. It was the idea of Ave Maria Radio's Al Cresta and his producer, Nick Tom. The entire staff was pressed into service. Many had never worked on a large conference before. Consideration wasn't given to the fact that the Christmas and New Year's holidays would knock a large hole in being able to get things done. But Jesus is still Lord. Phone calls were finally returned after everyone got back to work and everything worked out. The registration numbers were small the Monday before the conference. Prayer was offered. The telephones then started and kept ringing. Email orders kept arriving. 
The decision was made and 700 chairs were set. That Saturday morning, people kept arriving. Some attendees sat around the edges of the ballroom. I wasn't happy during the sound check the previous evening. The fail-safe electronics were failing us, but everything worked out pretty well during the conference. The audience was even in their seats at the appointed starting time. That's a miracle. We started on time. I go to a lot of conferences. That just doesn't happen. Notre Dame University School of Law's Professor Gerard Bradley is our main speaker on this program. Following his talk, Al Cresta will chair a panel discussion with the head of the Thomas More Law Center, Dick Thompson, and co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center, Rob Muse. To open this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, here is the chair of the conference and president of Ave Maria Communications, Al Cresta, commenting on the culture's attack on religious liberty. On this question of religious liberty, challenges are coming our way obliquely. They're not direct frontal attacks on religious liberty necessarily, but they come in from the side. Let me give you an example of one. It has to do with the redefinition of marriage, so-called gay marriage. Hollingsworth versus Perry, United States versus Windsor, those are the two great cases the Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments for. One deals with California's Proposition 8, the other deals with the Federal Defense of Marriage Act that was signed during the Clinton administration. No case in the Supreme Court's history has been more extensively briefed than these two cases. In other words, people who sign on as a friend of the court, this is the largest number that we've ever seen. People think that this decision will be, if the Supreme Court decides to offer a substantial decision, that it will be culture-changing. It won't just change the law on marriage. It will change culture because it will represent a shift. It will make explicit a shift from, for lack of a better term, the Judeo-Christian worldview with its number of assumptions over to what might be called a positivist or a secularist view of the world. And, of course, it'll be related to our most fundamental social institution, marriage. Now, what happens when, let's say, just for the sake of discussion, that the Supreme Court offers a decision in which they, I don't think this will happen this time around, let's just say, if they did decide that people had a right to same-sex marriage, so-called, we would see a new understanding of marriage developing. Of course, heterosexuals themselves have redefined a marriage over the last two generations. Homosexuals have come along and said, look, uh, we want to be part of that too. You've redefined marriage this way. Why shouldn't we be part of it? Here's where it comes into the religious liberty question, though. Preaching. Teaching. We already see people claiming that if you get into the pulpit and you oppose same-sex so-called marriage, that you are a bigot, that you are as bad as racists, who once supported bans on interracial marriage. Well, in Canada, we do know that bishops there have been challenged by the Human Rights Tribunal for simply writing pastoral letters where they define marriage according to historic Catholic standards. The good news is that up to this point, they have not been shut down, and free speech has prevailed in these cases. But there's no guarantee that they will prevail here in the United States if this goes through. People will end up saying, well, you can't talk that way because to be opposed to same-sex so-called marriage is hate speech, that it indicates a degree of social hostility that can't be tolerated in a free society. 
Therefore, religious institutions which continue to persist in preaching against the immorality of homosexuality, these institutions really should no longer be considered good neighbors. Perhaps there won't be legal action against them, but they'll be ignored. We see that happening with the Catholic Church now. In a number of states, the Catholic Church has been told they can no longer participate in adoption services because we won't release children to same-sex parents. We find that in the human trafficking area, where the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops had one of the two best victims assistance programs for human trafficking victims, but because we wouldn't refer or provide abortion and contraceptives, the federal government withdrew their cooperation and their partnership and their funding from us. So it's a serious matter that we're facing. So listen carefully to the arguments as they're presented today. And remember, it's a great time to be Catholic in America. The darker the darkness, the brighter the light. Now with the Religious Liberty Talk, present peril to religious freedom, here is Professor Gerard Bradley. Thanks very much, Nick, for the introduction. He began to race through it, and I actually don't bore you to read the rest of it in the uh, brochure. There are a couple of things that aren't in the brochure, which may be worth mentioning. One is that my wife and I have only eight children, and I say only eight because I was getting reacquainted with a former student of mine, Rob Muse, who's going to be part of the panel speaking in the group after this. And Rob kind of embarrassed me. They have only 12. And Rob is quite a bit younger than me, so I think he might not be done, as we are. And I'm not sure if this is in the brochure or not, but in what now seems like a former life, and back in my native New York City, I was a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office. So before I began law teaching that eternity ago in Champaign, Illinois, actually 30 years ago, I was a prosecutor in Manhattan. And you know, if we get too depressed talking about the HHS mandate and you find me tedious in a few minutes, and if you really push me, and maybe if I'd had more wine at lunch, we could talk about being a prosecutor in the early to mid-80s in Manhattan. I should warn you that my specialty at that time was I was the pimp prosecutor in Manhattan. <laughs> Scout's honor. But lest I be accused of being a poor guest, I do want to thank Nick for the introduction, and I say that sincerely, and to Al Crester and his whole team for inviting me and for putting this whole thing together. Thanks to all of you for coming. I think there are six to 700 of you, which I consider to be just remarkable, a wonderful witness in itself that so many of you have come out on what actually is a beautiful winter day. But I trust most of you, if not almost all of you, would have been here if the weather is, had been what it typically is in mid-January. And I do thank God for a beautiful day because I drove up from South Bend this morning and it will be easy enough to drive back home. So that worked out quite well. And frankly, a, a small personal confession, maybe a point of personal privilege. I, I was actually glad to escape South Bend today for two main reasons. One is that at home, there are a lot of Christmas decorations that have to be brought down. <laughs> and as you can see, I'm not home. And my wife really couldn't you know, criticize me for being here instead. And the other is that South Bend is kind of a gloomy place. Now, at this time of year, it usually is cloudy, and it's really a rust belt city. It's not like Ann Arbor, as some people tend to think. Well, it's Notre Dame. It must be a college town. South Bend is a rust belt city that has been in a bad economic situation for 30 or more years, just beginning now to crawl back out of that situation, try to reinvent itself as a hipper place. But notwithstanding that, it's actually been in a state of acute depression since Monday night. Now, you know that 
if you're a football fan, it's really a hangover Tuesday when you wake up after the thrashing on Monday night to learn from reliable wire service reports that the coach of your team, who had been glorying and basking in the glory just 24 hours earlier, 12-0 season, is already interviewing for another job. So our coach, Brian Kelly, on Tuesday morning was reported to have interviewed. This is how far down our spirits have come. Kelly is looking for a job in Philadelphia for the 4-12 and Eagles. So he's a little bit discouraged, too. But that's not what I came to talk about, although we can talk about football and pimping, too, for that matter, later on. <laughs> but Al Cresta will be mad at me and, and probably slap me upside the head if I don't talk about religious freedom. And it certainly um, is enough to talk about. I'm going to talk about the HHS mandate and some other concrete pressing legal issues in a minute. But before I do that, I'd like to maybe frame my remarks with um, an observation about two possibilities for going forward. As Americans in this time and place, concerning religious freedom and given the challenges we're facing, there are two paths that diverge quite a bit, two ways of going about this. And let me describe those two. And again, the frame, you might say, for my remarks. One is to think, as I think probably we all think of this sometimes, and maybe some of us think of it this way almost all the time, and it's basically the way lawyers think, and it's roughly this, that we're in a fight with the Obama administration about this mandate, which actually should be called much less often than it is called a contraceptive mandate. It really should be called an abortion mandate. And it would do us a lot of good, I think, rhetorically and politically and with public opinion if we did that. But one way to think about it is, well, we have this religious liberty problem, and we'll get lawyers and politicians and lobbyists and public opinion mobilized, and we'll try to solve the problem, because the problem is basically to win this battle, pushing back the mandate, so that the church and Catholics would then have enough room to do what it is they really should be doing, which is to teach and preach and evangelize. So we have to win this contest in order to be the church, and to be the church the way we want to be and should be. Now, I would describe that as thinking of religious liberty instrumentally. And so far described, that's not an inaccurate way of thinking. But there is another way of thinking, which I think if we leave this out, and all too often we do, and even bishops often do, we're making a big mistake, which is not so much to fight the battle to win so we can be church, but to be church, to be faithful witnesses during the fight. You might say here, not religious liberty is instrumental so that we can teach and evangelize, but during the course of this struggle to witness to the truth about religious liberty, in that way be a great service to our society, and in fact, I think, really be true to ourselves. And they're not the same thing. And part of what I want to say over the next 20 or 25 minutes is to show how they're not quite the same thing. But let me start directly then with this HHS mandate and with something that you've heard said, I'm sure, several times. I know Cardinal Dolan has said it, Bishop William Laurie, now Archbishop, I should say, of Baltimore, who's the head of the Bishop's Ad Hoc Committee on Religious Liberty, the general counsel of the Bishop's Conference, a man named Anthony Piccarillo has said this, but here's what they've said, that the mandate is an unprecedented intrusion attack upon religious liberty. That's the claim. And I want to consider whether it's true. And I think it is. And I'm going to explain why and how it's true. But I do think the mandate is an unprecedented intrusion or attack upon religious liberty. 
Now I'm going to put aside for the moment and just name two other aspects or episodes or campaigns in American history, which I'm going to name and put aside, but say they're different, although they were serious attacks too. But they're different. Namely, the struggle in the 19th century in America over the Mormon Church, Latter-day Saints, LDS, and polygamy, where the national government waged a pretty much take-no-prisoners campaign against the Mormon Church over polygamy, and then the way the government, especially the national government, has treated over decades, if not a century and a half or so, American Indian religion, Native American spirituality. It's a different situation, but in both cases, the government took on a religious belief system and a group of believers and really were in a kind of death struggle with them. That's not our case, but our case is very bad indeed, and it is unprecedented in a very important way because apart from the very recent cases involving same-sex adoption and foster care, speaking specifically about Boston, Washington, and Illinois, where Catholic Charities Foster Services had to close down rather than facilitate adoptions or foster care by same-sex couples, apart from those very recent instances, never before, as far as I can tell, in American history, has the federal government, state government, or a local government put an institutional ministry out of business over the ministry's refusal to do something which it regarded as, morally speaking, impossible to do. Now, this is a kind of martyrdom, so let me use that term, martyrdom. Never before in American history has a government at the state, national, or local level martyred an institutional ministry over what some people would call a matter of conscientious objection or with regard to the abortion aspects of this mandate, the refusal of the ministry to be complicit in an injustice, but however you want to describe it exactly, for refusing to do that which the ministry people in it said we, morally speaking, find that impossible to do. Never before has a ministry been martyred for that reason. Now, this is a very remarkable fact about American history, and it reflects well upon our institutions, reflects well upon our good record with respect for religious liberty. Not a perfect record, but a good practice, legal setup, and constitutional system. But also, it's a curious fact in light of the anti-Catholicism which has permeated American history, really from the beginning, flaring up into kind of white-hot battles from time to time, but always there, if not a little bit below the surface, at the surface. But our history of anti-Catholicism has had some sorry moments and episodes. I think that it reached a kind of height, if you will, a zenith of sorts in the 1920s when the state of Oregon tried to put all Catholic parochial schools out of business, passed a law that said everybody has to go to public school. But that law was thrown out of existence by the United States Supreme Court, which came to the Catholic school's rescue, and uttered in a case from 1925, a case called Pierce versus Society of Sisters, is a famous phrase which always repays remembering that Children are not mere creatures of the state. That's a quote. That children ought to be reared by their parents with the assistance of the state. And the state had no right whatsoever to try to standardize its kids by making them all go to the common public school. Now, that was the Pierce case. Now, the anti-Catholicism that has been a recurring feature of American history has mostly expressed itself in what I hesitate to say, but will nonetheless say, more healthy ways. 
mainly over public funding, and even there, mainly over public funding of schools, not so much hospitals and charities. But again, it's remarkable that at this moment, at a time when American society at least flatters itself as being more liberal, more tolerant, more pluralistic, and more diverse, more respectful of human rights than ever it was before, now for the first time, the law, in this case the mandate, aims to make martyrs of Catholic institutional ministries, notwithstanding this long history of, let's call it, hostility to Catholic institutions. Now, one reason why I think this day is different, and here I want to move below the surface of lawsuits and political rhetoric and talk about the culture, you might say the culture of religious liberty in our society and comparing it to the past. Now, notwithstanding, as I say, a substantial recurring ration of anti-Catholicism in American history, their world was very different than ours because notwithstanding this anti-Catholicism, the 19th century into the middle of the 20th century, maybe until about 30 or 40 years ago, ours was a society which cherished religion, both in public as a great good to the people and to the society, and in private as the solace and salvation of souls. Ours was a society until, again, at least the middle of the 20th century, which believed in providence and judgment and heaven and hell, and which maintained both in law and culture, biblical morality about killing, sex, and the family. Ours was a society, again, until 40 or 50 years ago, which understood the gospel, which respected people who tried to live lives of integrated witness to the truths of Christianity. Ours was a society that understood discipleship. This is not our world. And the HH mandate, I dare say, would not be possible in the society of 30, 40, 50, and more years ago. It is possible, it's happened, in our world, mainly not due to changes in the law, but to changes in the culture. The culture of religious liberty, which itself can only be understood by thinking about the state of two things in our culture, religion and liberty. And here is my entree to developed the suggestion I mentioned earlier that during the course of fighting it out in lawsuits and in legislative halls and in a court of public opinion and letters to the editor and even in conferences like this, during the course of the fight, we should never lose track of the fact that we're obliged to give witness to the truth about religious liberty, which in turn means witnessing to the truth about religion and about freedom and thus about religious freedom. And I stress that because, and here I... I don't hesitate for a second to say it is one person's opinion. I don't mean to be too modest in saying that, like, ah, shucks, it's just me. I do this for a living. I have taught constitutional law, etc., for a long time. But nobody can know for certain what the future holds in this regard or in any other. But it is my opinion that things are not going to go well for religious liberty and for the church's institutions over the next five years. It may be, maybe that a rough consensus of judicial opinions emerges over the next two, three years, which leaves intact most of the institutional ministries that we presently have, such as they are, colleges, hospitals, Catholic charities. That, that could happen. There'll be a consensus of judicial opinions which create this space. I think there'll be such outfits that are martyred and put out of business because they have no choice but either to pay ruinous fines or do what they can't do. 
But even so, there's a juggernaut that's around the corner and already in sight that's actually going to be a more formidable foe than the HHS mandate, which is same-sex marriage. And that's going to be a real game-changer. Now, I'm not here saying, predicting what the Supreme Court will do with the two cases it has. I, I frankly don't know. But anybody can see that apart from what the Supreme Court does, it's not only a reality in nine states plus the District of Columbia, it'll become a reality in other states. If you followed the newspapers over the last two weeks, you know that there was a close call in Illinois just last week over same-sex marriage, a bill that looked like it was going to come to the floor of the House for a vote. And if it passed, it would have been signed by the governor. It was averted. Um, I think the Democrats discovered they didn't have the votes and decided not to bring the bill to a floor vote. But already, given the prospect of this legislative vote, Cardinal George, Bishop Paprocki of Springfield, I think the other Illinois bishops issued clarion calls for action. And I think they're partly at least responsible for the fact it turned out as well as it has turned out. But it'll be back in Illinois. But I bring this up especially because if you happen to have a moment, and perhaps a few of you already have looked at the bill in Illinois, it has a specific provision which governs religious freedom. In fact, the whole bill, the purpose of which is to legally recognize same-sex marriage, Actually, the bill is called, again, Scout's Honor, the Religious Freedom and Marriage Fairness Act. Now, a more disingenuous and misleading title for a mischievous act could hardly be imagined. But if you do look at the religious freedom provisions, and here, if you want to get some help, some cliff notes on the side, read Bishop Paprocki's letter, which I know is included as a bulletin insert in this Diocese of Springfield, but I'm sure it's online somewhere. But Bishop Paprocki's letter, Thomas Paprocki, the last couple of paragraphs are about the religious freedom implications of this bill. Now notice, these are implications of a bill that says it's about religious freedom. And the implications are catastrophic. I say to you that however the thing about same-sex marriage turns out, and I don't know for sure how it will turn out other than the nine states we have are not going to be the last nine. There will be more. Wherever that becomes embedded in law, it's like a ticking bomb for any institution, including Catholic institutions, that simply are not going to condone, recognize, and approve of the pseudo-marriages of two men and two women. Now, this is not designed to depress you, although it may be one effect of what I'm saying. It's just to, to talk about what's going on and to say, even if we escape the hangman's noose with the mandate, we're in trouble anyway. So, two things. What might one think about how to fight this out with at least the view that winning is not the only thing, and in fact, it's quite possible, even likely, we're not going to win, that many Catholic institutions will be martyred. And this is a happy sort of martyrdom because there are worse kinds of martyrdom. None of us is going to live long enough, I think, to become martyrs to the faith in America. I suspect that's not going to happen, although some people in this room are probably going to spend more than a couple of hours in jail over this. But we're talking about institutional martyrdom. So one, what can we do to witness as church during the course of this twilight struggle? Then I'd like to say just a little bit about, well, what then about institutional ministries? And I think although I do suggest, even predict, the demise, the martyrdom of many of our large-scale institutions, Catholic charities with million-dollar, multi-million-dollar budgets, research hospitals, half-a-billion-dollar physical structures, the big colleges and universities, they're in a heap of trouble. 
But that doesn't mean there'll be no institutional ministries in the future. They'll just be different. And I think that this may be an occasion when we have to just revisit, remind ourselves of the fact, and it is a fact, that these ministries are meant to be vehicles and helps to witnessing to the truth. They're the structure meant to serve the mission. So a Catholic hospital, you might say, is not just for the purpose or even for the purpose of healing people, sick people. A Catholic hospital aims to do what hospitals do, to heal the sick, but to do so in a way that witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what a Catholic hospital does. Any soup kitchen can fill the stomachs and warm the hearts of people who need a meal. A Catholic soup kitchen does that with the intention, making the effort, so that the people who eat see Jesus in the face of those serving them, and so that those serving the meals can see Jesus in the face of the people they serve. And this is not you know, a high-flying sermon. This is Catholicism 101. That is to say, the ministries are meant as ways to witness. And if certain ministries are no longer possible in our society or in any other, then we need to look creatively for other sorts of ministries. And I need to say a little bit about that. What kinds of ministries might be fruitful possibilities? What opportunities might we develop in a world where the prospect for today's, let's call them mega institutions, the Notre Dames of the world, the research hospitals, where the prospects for those places are not good? So first, what about the meaning of religious liberty and what can we talk about during the course of this argument about the scope of religious liberty in America? I think the best way I can put it is this way. And one or two of you, maybe Rob Muse and Dick Thompson, perhaps the sisters, have been wondering when, in the course of this now long talk about religious freedom, is this Catholic professor from Notre Dame going to mention Dignitatis Humanae, which is the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Freedom? Well, the answer is I'm going to mention it now. Okay. I, mean, I do say, and this is a bit of an aside, I think all too many of us, and I include myself, and I include bishops in this too, people talking about the mandate and what's at stake, I think all too often we satisfy ourselves by talking about it in terms of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the founders and the First Amendment and the Supreme Court and cases and this and that, but that's not enough. We need to do that, but we need to do more. We need to talk about religious liberty as or about the truth of the matter about religious liberty. And I think we should do that more than we have done. So if you look at Dignitas Humanae, the Vatican Council's Declaration of Religious Freedom, you'll see that religious liberty is defined as kind of freedom from coercion, or to use the term that's used as a term of art in that document, immunity from coercion. Don't force people to confess a faith that they don't themselves voluntarily want to profess. And don't prevent them, at least within certain limits, from expressing the faith that they do conscientiously hold. Religion ought to be that which we come to believe to be true, not holding it because others say we should, we can get ahead by holding this and professing it. But that's to define religious liberty. But what's it for? It's not for the sake of itself. And what the Vatican Council said it is for is the following. I'm quoting now Dignitas Humanae. All men are bound to seek the truth in matters religious and to embrace the truth they come to know and to hold it fast. That's what the immunity from coercion is for. 
people are to be free in that way from coercion in order to discharge their moral responsibilities. Again, bound to seek the truth in matters religious and to embrace the truth they come to know and to hold fast to it. Now, that's what freedom of religion is for. But I think we live in a culture in which the predicates of that duty have disappeared from view. Let me put that a little bit differently. Religious liberty, the sense of it, on the church's understanding of it, is for the purpose of people discharging a moral duty to the truth. And religion is something about the truth. You might say religion is a zone of truth. Religion is about the truth of the universe. It's about reality. Religion is not some projection of my desires. It is not a set of hypotheses that I embrace because I feel like I'm empowered by them. It's not the rules of our club. It's not the tribal customs of the tribe my parents adhered to and thus I do too. Again, on the understanding of religion and freedom, in digitalis humanae, religion is about the truth about reality. And that freedom is there so we can do what we ought to do, which is adhere to the truth. We don't live in this world. I don't mean the 600 or so of us, but I mean generally American culture, which in some respects is a lot better off, even with regard to religious freedom, than most other societies. But we don't live in a legal world or a constitutional world or an academic world or a cultural world, and I dare say, even on the ground, perhaps in your parish. I think people think of both religion and freedom quite differently. They think of religion on different terms. It's about spirituality. It's about attraction to liturgy. It's about the experience that somehow is promoted by being part of this community. I dare say people don't often think of religion. It's about reality. It's about how things really and truly are, including things that we can't see except through a glass darkly now, but come to know through faith, through the revelation of God in Jesus. We live in a world in which religion is something different. It's about an individual's quest for identity and to establish who they are and to make that person stamp, maybe it includes religion, maybe it doesn't, but establish their authenticity. And their idea of the relevant freedom is to do what they happen to want to do. I don't think in our culture we think of religion as making a demand upon us as the truth about reality and a truth which calls us to investigation, to critical thinking, to affirming, and to adhering. We don't live in that culture. So if you want a short answer to the question, why are we in so much trouble with regard to religious liberty? There are other secondary but important parts of an answer. The main part of any answer, I think, lies here. What would you expect religious liberty to be and to become if people have wacky ideas of what religion and liberty are. Well, we do have, again, in the dominant sectors of our society, a wacky idea of religion and a wacky idea of freedom. Now, freedom would just be a matter of self-assertion, of just establishing my stance towards the world, about establishing my identity, my individuality, my authenticity. We don't think of freedom as kind of getting in touch with and in line with reality. That would be conforming or doing what somebody else wants us to do. That wouldn't be freedom. So that's the short answer. We live in a degraded culture of religion and liberty, so hence degraded culture of religious liberty. But as I say, I think the large-scale institutions we have are in trouble. 
Not only because the law is looking for them, and you can run from the law for quite a while, but you can't hide indefinitely from the law. The law is going to catch up with people. So that, especially with regard to same-sex marriage and its being in the offing, I think things don't look good. The diagnosis is grim already, and the prognosis is worse for the mega institutions. I think they're already in trouble apart from anything the law is doing. For reasons that many of you could recite as knowledgeably as I could, and perhaps more so, we can see that so many of the Catholic colleges, universities, hospitals, and Catholic charities have been so compromised by government contracts, so compromised by secularism, compromised by professional staffing, where people are in professions that themselves are undergoing these kind of ideological purges, where whether it's not so much pharmacy, whether it's psychology and law, OBGYN, all sorts of professions are going through periods of ideological purification, if you will. And all of these schools and outfits have professional guilds, ABA accredited and American Association of Law Schools member. These are two professional guilds that the law school belongs to. And these guilds are closing in. And frankly, institutions of this size, these proportions, I think in many cases simply can't find enough faithful Catholics so that the thing they're doing is actually an apostolate. You think about, in a way, how ridiculous it is to think that you're running an apostolate, an institutional ministry. You're running a hospital or a college or a charities. And the idea, as I suggest, is that you want to do these things to heal and to feed and to teach, but you want to do so in a way that witnesses to Jesus. But you have 80% of your employees don't know Jesus. Well, it doesn't sound very promising if you want that institution to witness to Jesus. Well, we could go on and on, but there are a lot of causes other than the law why these institutional ministries might be exhausted. So for that reason, too, it's time to look towards the future. So all too briefly, what might that future look like? Well, I think that the new institutional ministries will be basically of two kinds. Some will be modified, recognizable versions of institutions that now exist. Catholic worker houses, St. Vincent de Paul societies, hospices. I think we'll have some Catholic colleges and universities, far fewer than we presently have, and we should cultivate those few that we do have. But I think in higher education, perhaps the most promising way to go would be to establish, much more so than we have, Catholic residential colleges at public and private non-Catholic universities. These would be Newman centers on steroids. That is to say, not just places where you can go to eat, and for fellowship and to talk and maybe hear some lectures by the likes of the people you've heard today, but true residential colleges, men and women separately, but men and women would have places to live, and they would be enrolled in non-credit bearing but serious courses of study, and they would have not a total life environment, but they would basically have a center of gravity while at Purdue or Michigan or Indiana or you name it, where they were formed as not only Catholic young people, but even formed intellectually as Catholics. So with regard to the immediate and intermediate future of Catholic higher ed, I'm just suggesting we pay careful thought to think about establishing more and more of these types of colleges in proximity to Ohio State and Indiana and Penn State, etc. Now, all of the institutional ministries of the future, or almost all of them, I think, will be well, they'll be larger in number, total number than now, but smaller and leaner than today's mega ministries. 
They'll offer their services to the spiritually poor as well as those who are materially disadvantaged. They'll be largely lay-initiated and lay-managed. And they'll rely on volunteers as much or more than paid staff. They'll be off the grid or barely on the grid. They'll be serving people who may not be able to pay for services, but maybe have to provide services for free. Maybe there'll even be some bartering involved. But I think that the ministries of the future will have to be, how can we describe them, interstitial and more virtual and floating, not so much big bricks and mortar, large payroll, heavily endowed, heavily regulated mega institutions, that these opportunities in general in the future will look much more like a Catholic worker house than Notre Dame. They'll be smaller and not so much under the radar, but for various reasons able to operate in what amounts to a hostile legal and cultural environment, and they'll be of a size where they'll be able to be staffed by people who really want to witness to Jesus and aren't just looking for a job with benefits. Let me mention two of the second kind of ministries for the future. These will be my concluding points. These are not adaptations or variations on established things, like the Newman Center on Steroids. That's a kind of version of what we're familiar with. We know what a Newman Center is. Maybe there's one on this campus for all I know. But these are new things, but they reach out to and try to deal with areas that I think, I submit to you, are areas of acute need in our culture, areas that I'll describe as areas where the pastoral needs are enormous and the perils to Catholic life are great and grave, but where we have a scattershot of ministry and where I think we need perhaps to think in terms of not adapting something already existing, but creating new vehicles, new ways to deliver the pastoral care, the information, and the support that people need in these two areas. And it sounds not only not insightful, but almost trite to say, well, living in a virtual world, we can deliver a lot of services to people in a way that doesn't involve the institutional foundations that we're familiar with. You don't need bricks and mortar anymore to go to college. We don't need offices and even that many um, accountants to deliver certain services. So two areas. One is, no surprise, human procreation. Government market cultural powers have conspired to indoctrinate our young people, especially young women, into grossly immoral practices and have foisted upon those people a mentality which rationalizes immoral practices contraception chiefly among them. Now, headlines about pharmacists and Plan B and about the American Psychological Association and the law in California recently, which outlaws, you might say, reparative therapies, there are lots of headlines that have to do with the need in this area. But I want to say that something internal to the church creates this need, and there's a gap, you might say, in church resources. How about this? I have adult children, and I've tried to have the conversation with them that I think we all should have with our kids, and our kids need. So, Humanae Vitae says that it's wrong to use contraception, not even artificial birth control, but contraception. Any act which intends as a means or an end to frustrate the natural outcome of the procreative act. Now, in Humanae Vitae, it also says that there can be good reasons, serious reasons, grave reasons. There can be reasons why people should limit the number of kids they have and to space them, perhaps space their kids indefinitely. Now, what I think is missing from our catechesis, from our pastoral strategies, and certainly institutionally it's missing in action, is any kind of account of how young people should truly 
in a Christian way, discern the number of kids they should have and when they should have them. Okay, just say that again. We're all called to discern what our responsibilities in life involve. And certainly, Humani Vitae is telling us, young people, that they have to discern the number of children that they should have. How much have you read recently in your Catholic newspaper, heard from the pulpit, or in the confessional? How much have you read even on Zenit, you know, with Vatican documents, which addresses this question? How should young people, especially women, integrate their various vocational responsibilities? Their professional responsibilities and aspirations, their responsibilities to their husband, whatever other responsibilities they have, how do you integrate those with the responsibilities that you're in principle agreeing to take on when you get married? How, in what way, and according to what considerations, and with what help are young people today coming to discern the number of kids they have, except by picking up retail knockoffs from the dominant culture? It's two and it's done, maybe three if the first two are girls. I don't think we have a distinctively Catholic subculture, if you will, about discerning the number of children God is calling one to have. Now, if you're Rob Muse and his wife, you've simplified this. You've decided to have as many children as apparently you can have. I don't descend from that view, but that's one way to go. But everyone should discern what God is calling them to do in this regard. Lastly, I mentioned in passing a minute ago about a law in California that outlawed, basically, reparative therapy, therapy which is designed to rid a person who's willing and wants to be rid of same-sex attraction. The law says you can't do that with a minor, and the professional associations, the APA, etc., treat that as quackery, disapproved, and you're an outcast if you do reparative therapy. But this is just an indicator of a crisis in what I would call the psycho-industrial complex. But you all know this, right? That it's very, very difficult to get sound counseling about depression, anxiety, from a competent, that is professionally qualified, seriously Catholic or Christian psychiatrist, psychologist. And this is not the same thing as discernment, the first thing, which requires pastoral guidance and wisdom from people who have thought through it before you. This is different. We need people who are professionally qualified, but who are profoundly Catholic and won't do what all too many people in the so-called therapeutic professions do. What's their priority? Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe it's happened to me. Maybe it's happened to your kids. But if you go to the average person you find in the phone book, and even someone who might be recommended to you as pretty sound, what's their goal? To restore your mental, emotional, psychological wholeness, your peace, your self-esteem. Their job is not to integrate all of that into your moral responsibilities to other people. One needs counseling that takes on board your moral responsibilities and also takes on board, of course, that some attitudes and feelings and anxieties that we have are not pathologies, but are fine. We should be ashamed of some of the things we do. We should be, in a sense, depressed or sad, at least, about some things we've done. So those are the two areas that I suggest Presently, one can get, in a kind of scattershot way, if one's lucky, the name of an individual who's really reliable. But that won't do it for millions of Catholics in America. There needs to be an institutionalized network of people, some kind of go-to place where one, us, our kids, can get access to 
sound discernment advice and psychiatric and psychological care. Now, further I say it not, and I think Bob and Dick Thompson are going to take it from here. That was Notre Dame University School of Law's Professor Gerard Bradley with his talk from Nave Maria Radio's Catholic Witness in a Nation Divided Conference. His title, Present Peril to Religious Freedom. We'll be back with a panel discussion right after these messages. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. After Professor Bradley's talk, the panel of Al Cresta, Dick Thompson, and Rob Muse took their seats at the table. Professor Bradley didn't take a seat at the table, but later he came and got a handheld wireless microphone from me so that he could participate. As you'll soon hear, the discussion did get a bit spirited. Here is Al Cresta and the panel discussion. Well, again, good to be with all of you. Jerry was pretty frightening. I mean, really, we're talking about a different way of ministry, different type of apostolate in the future. Uh, you can fill us in a little bit more on this problem that Narth is having and the whole reparative therapy thing. This is remarkable to me because here you have a professional association claiming that a particular type of therapeutic discipline is, quote, quackery, when in fact, those who are apparently benefiting from this therapy are very happy with what's happening. What I don't understand is why can't we just let well enough alone? Why do they have to insist that NARTH, uh, the uh, National Association for Reparative Therapy, why do they need the good housekeeping seal of approval from the American Psychological Association? Well, the background, very briefly, is California passed a law, went into effect, really quite recently in the last couple of months, which made it unlawful for a minor to be treated in this way, even if the parents and the minor, too, wanted the kind of therapy. This is the law, and it stems from, um, I guess you might say, a lobbying campaign by the professionals. It's not as if the yokels put it in their heads at some point to get rid of NARTH or reparative therapy, but rather the profession is purging itself, you might say, of people who are practicing what the profession thinks of as a kind of quackery. But again, it's, it's strictly something that would otherwise be given to volunteers, that is, people who willingly wanted this. And there's no denying the claims of successful treatment that proponents of reparative therapy, Joe Nicholas and others say, and people themselves say, this has worked for me. No one doubts that they're speaking sincerely. People in the profession may doubt in some ways the soundness of their own self-understanding. But nonetheless, that's the way it goes. At least two lawsuits were filed. One was thrown aside by a federal court judge in California. But one one lawsuit has gained some traction. I'm not really sure how this will all play out, but I, I think the chances are less than 50-50 that it'll have a happy ending. Now, one answer to the question you raise, Al, is, well, what could be wrong with this? I mean, is, you know, isn't medicine and sexuality all about freedom of choice? You know, one size does not fit all. You can have do what you want, float your own boat. Well, that's generally true, but I think here, as in a few other places in our culture and the professions, freedom of choice takes a backseat to a kind of moral orthodoxy or immoral orthodoxy, a kind of dogmatism. And behind this law and the professional pressure for it, 
I would say unquestionably is the view that anybody who seeks this therapy obviously doesn't want to be attracted to a man, woman. And doctors who help people rid you of that, at least so far speaking, are approving or agreeing or helping you to be rid of this unwanted attraction. And, of course, that won't do since we're going to establish if we're the relevant professional guild and we're going to do it through law if we have to and we can. We're going to establish that this is perfectly normal. If you find yourself attracted to someone of the same sex, there is no reason in that why you should want to be otherwise. That's the moral dogma behind this law. And it really, behind the law is not, you know, some sinister account of malpractice or some people practicing this therapy who are really harmed. The guild might say that these kids or some of them would be harmed, but all they're really referring to is the reality that you're talking about a patient who has an unwanted attraction and is feeling anxiety and dissonance because of that. The view of the guild would be, well, get past the dissonance and you're feeling this harm and people who would help you try to get rid of the feeling are fostering or continuing or promoting that harm. What you should do is get lined up with your feelings because those feelings as such are completely beyond moral judgment. This is funny because you've got the people who believe that human nature is relatively plastic <laughs> now saying, oh, no, no, we didn't really mean that. You are this way. We're telling you what you are. Yeah. Go ahead, Rob. No, Sorry. I was going to say, you know, this is part of a, a broader agenda. I mean, you got to be clear about that. You know, there's another lawsuit, aside from the law in California, there's a lawsuit that was filed in New Jersey by the Southern Poverty Law Center challenging one of the religious-based organizations there that does engage in this sort of therapy under the false advertisement, false business type uh, laws in, in New Jersey. So it is all part of this. I think it is part of undermining traditional marriage and the natural relationship between a, a man and a woman. And it's undermining our, our society and undermining our religious values. I mean, there's no question about that. And I think it's, uh, it, it's calculated as well. Let me uh, ask for a appropriately quick response on this. Do you expect to see religious institutions lose their tax exemption? I don't think they will. Okay. I just want to make a comment about uh, Professor Bradley's uh, comments. Number one, factually, as describing the situation, I think he's correct. Describing the conclusion, I think he's wrong. And I believe he's wrong because we are going to win. When I uh, started to become a convert to the Catholic Church, Father Hardin was my spiritual advisor. The first thing he had me do is read a history of the Catholic Church. I think it was by an author by the name of John Locke. Anyway, if you read the history of the Catholic Church, you will see the Catholic Church has been involved with persecution. There's been internal turmoil throughout the 2,000 years that we've had. And it's always been able to survive. Now what you look at today is just another battle that the Catholic Church is having. And I want to go back to my personal experience when I was a prosecutor in Oakland County and I was prosecuting Jack Kevorkian. Eighty-three percent of the people in Oakland County thought I should not be prosecuting him. He was characterized as the angel of mercy. Seventy percent of the people in the state of Michigan thought that assisted suicide should be legalized. And based upon that, Jack Kevorkian and his cronies were able to get a question on the ballot, Proposition B, to legalize physician-assisted suicide. All at once, the Catholic Church in Michigan said, 
It's not going to happen. And when the Catholic Church and the bishops and the priests got behind defeating Proposition B, despite the fact that 70% of the people had supported it, within four weeks, the public opinion changed. And you know why? Every Sunday, a homily was given about the sanctity of human life. They had lawn signs, as some of you may remember, say no to Proposal B. And the parishioners were picking them up. And you could, you could not drive down a block without seeing three or four signs saying no to Proposal B. They defeated physician-assisted suicide. They turned around this 70% of support for it. So if the Catholic Church and our leaders get behind supporting a no vote on the HHS mandate, when I say a no vote, I'm not talking about the legal battles that we're having, but I'm talking about the culture battles that we are having, people expect the Catholic bishops to say we're going to oppose the HHS mandate. But now we're having Catholic businessmen like Tom Monahan, like Dan Weingartz, filing lawsuits saying it violates my religious beliefs. I'm not talking about some hierarchical bishop saying it's not good. I'm talking about me as a Catholic. And once the bishops get behind it and once the church gets behind it, we will win this war. With all due respect, Professor Bradley, I was almost hearing a surrender that we had to now bring our forces in. We could not win. And the reason I cannot phantom a surrender, because I'm also not only a member of the Catholic Church, I belong to the United States of America. And I believe if the Catholic Church is defeated, ultimately our nation will disintegrate. We are a nation that's built upon religion and morality. Let me, uh, well, let me, let me point something out though. This actually plays right into something I was going to say later. The United States of America doesn't have any promise that it will prevail. The only institution that has the promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against it is the church. And that's the purpose of this conference is to take our attention or whatever the Lord decides to do with it, and make sure that the church remains healthy. Because I agree with Dick. The Catholic Church in the United States deteriorates beyond where it is now. I don't think there is any hope for this nation. But I would also remind us, let's remember where the promise lies. The promise is to the church, not to the nation. I want to come back to that. Jerry, let me ask you on the tax exempt thing, just to get it on the record here. Do you think uh, we'll lose tax exemption? I mean, I think down the line, some institutions probably will. Okay. So let's come back then, and why don't you respond to Dick on this in terms of... Uh, no, see, I, look, he, he thinks that you were saying... I surrendered. You did. I was just going to... Well, that's my point. Yes. I want to know if you're as defeatist as Dick just portrayed you. Well, no. I mean, Dick is perfectly right to be feisty and determined. That's perfectly right. And I am too, although I'm a little bit less theatrical about it. (laughs) But perhaps one thing that he and I might actually genuinely disagree upon, I'm not sure that we do, would be um, in the neighborhood of what you just said, Al, that is, um, we need to be Catholics through all of this. And I think Catholics should always be looking for ways to evangelize and teach 
and exemplify the faith no matter what their circumstances. And again, it's a caveat on my part. Maybe it looks like planning after Versailles or after Appomattox. <laughs> but you know, I raise questions about, well, if it goes badly, what will we be called upon to do? And I do mean to say, and this is not defeatist, even if some institutions like Catholic Charities and Boston Foster Services are taken away, then one looks for the door that's opened when that one is closed. And that's not defeatist, it's not triumphalist, it is just being sure. what one should be. You know, when I first came here to Michigan, and I remember March 5th, 2000, I attended my first mass at that small chapel in Domino's Farms. At that point, those who remember, you had to work your way through the bookstore. There was a hole in the wall. Yeah, yeah. there was a hole in the wall. And the celebrant that day was somebody that uh, Mr. Thompson just mentioned, Father John Harden. And I had moved to Michigan from North Carolina. I spent uh, 13 years on active duty in the Marine Corps. My wife and I... Uh, thank you. Father Harden had become a hero of ours. And we're down in North Carolina reading a lot that he had written. I learned a lot about my faith from Father Harden. So my first day here in Michigan in that chapel... To have Father Harden be the celebrant was just, uh, it was just an extraordinary uh, uh, gift for me. But as Father Harden was, in his homily, and, and I'll never forget his homily, very, very simple, very to the point, as Father Harden was, and he said the same line over and over again. Those of you who knew Father Harden knew he would often repeat himself, and it was simply this. To live an authentic Catholic life, we must live the life of a martyr. And we are called to be witnesses to this world, there's no doubt, right? St. Paul reminds us to not be transformed by the mentality of this world. We've got to stand up to these forces. And we've got to be willing to be persecuted, right? Blessed are they who are persecuted in my name. But through that persecution is not failure. Through that persecution is victory. That's Christ on the cross. I don't know how this HHS mandate is going to work itself out in the courts. But if we're going to be a witness for the faith, and I got to tell you, it's, it was very refreshing to me to see our Catholic leaders, to see our bishops and our priests taking a leadership role on this very crucial social issue. And it has energized the faithful. There's no doubt about it. There was 44 lawsuits that were filed. Notre Dame, for goodness sakes, filed a lawsuit. <laughs> My alma mater, so I can say that. So it's so important to have our leaders. But just being that witness, sometimes it's difficult, but it's not the most difficult part. The most difficult part is what's going to come next if we don't prevail. Are we willing to be that martyr for our faith? And we have to be. We have to embrace that cross. And by embracing that cross is where our true victory is. You know, Ronald Reagan, you know, he said that our freedoms were not handed to us through the bloodstream. They must be fought for and protected at all times, lest they are just one generation away from extinction. So we are called to stand up and to fight. And as a constitutional lawyer, when I look at the Constitution, to me it does two principal things. It prevents tyranny and it protects liberty. So I, I'm proud of our bishops and, and religious leaders standing up for challenging the HHS mandate, but where were they with Obamacare? You know, when you have this power grab of the government... Is anybody surprised that after the passage of Obamacare that we have the HHS mandate? I certainly wasn't. And what's to come next? 
That's what we got to think. What is going to be next? And what's our role as these witnesses? You know, when they announced this compromise on the HHS mandate, and, and I know Father Pavone mentioned, we filed challenging HHS mandate on behalf of Priests for Life in federal court in New York, and we're going to take that as far as it needs to go, the Supreme Court, if necessary, to assert those fundamental rights. But they're claiming to have a compromise now, where they're saying they're not going to have the individual organizations pay for this abortion mandate, but the insurance company is going to cover it. And thankfully, the bishop said that's no compromise. And here's the thing. Kathleen Sebelius, during a hearing uh, on Obama's budget for 2013, was asked by a congressman, how can that be the case? How can we have contraception or services that nobody's paid for? These things aren't for free. And she said, by the reduction in the number of births, we'll be saving money on health care. Yeah, that's... That is a frightening proposition. So this HHS mandate is just the beginning. But we as Catholic witnesses, not only do we have to be witnesses, but we have to be willing to be martyrs for our faith. There are a few, few very important directions that present themselves here. Let me just return to you, Dick, for a minute. Did you want to... Have, well, did you have anything I, more to I say in that exchange? I, I don't disagree with everything that uh, Professor Bradley said. I do believe that we have to be a witness. Okay. <laughs> okay. And a way, uh, first of all, we brought a lawsuit on behalf of Dan Weingartz, Catholic, won that case, at least won the preliminary examination. Then we brought a lawsuit on behalf of Tom Monahan, got a temporary restraining order. Now, bringing the lawsuit, you know, we want to win that lawsuit, Jerry, but when we bring the lawsuit, it's also an educational thing. When we file the lawsuit, we let the courts know why Mr. Monahan is so outraged by the HHS mandate. When we filed that lawsuit, almost hundreds and hundreds of papers wrote about Tom Monahan, former owner of Domino's Pizza, says the HHS mandate violates his religious beliefs, it's immoral, and it is not medicine. And that went out throughout the country, and it was an educational format. In fact, this is really interesting. The judge, in the opinion, held in abeyance. The mandate said this, and I'm quoting from his opinion. Monaghan is a member of the Catholic Church. He asserts that his Catholic beliefs are in line with Pope Paul VI, 1968 encyclical Humana Vitae, which states, quote, any action which either before or at the moment of or after sexual intercourse is specifically intended to prevent procreation, whether as an end or as a mean, including contraception, is a grave sin, end of quote. And the judge goes on. For instance, Monaghan believes, in accordance with Pope John Paul II's 1995 encyclical Evangelum Vitae, that, quote, causing death can never be considered a form of medical treatment, but rather runs completely counter to the health profession, which is meant to be an impassioned and unflinching affirmation of life, end quote. He, at that time, was witnessing to the world about his Catholic faith, and business magazines, newspapers were quoting from that particular order of the judge. So when we file a lawsuit, Jerry, we want to win. But also when we file a lawsuit, it's a moment for education. It's a moment to understand that we are mobilizing Catholics. If Catholics see that a businessman like Tom Monaghan is ready to put his fortune on the line, then they say, well, this must be something worth fighting for. So I really think that uh, I agree with you. We have to have a witness, and a lawsuit is another way to bring witness. Yeah. I might have missed something, though. I'm trying to figure out in what way you guys actually disagree. 
I, th I thought what Jerry was doing was saying, if in fact we lose in these areas, what are some of the ways that we can come back? So, Dick, let's go to the illustration well, you used. Well, okay. The well, illustration he was, you used he said was things the, are going to change. No, no, no. The, this illustration you used. Let me go to this. You used the one that we love when we knocked off Kevorkian and we beat physician-assisted yeah. suicide. And you know, uh, Cardinal Maida was emboldened by that. Right. And then he decided he was going to go for school choice in Michigan. Remember? Yes. And he lost. He lost terribly. Now, this is what I'm trying to figure out here. What happens when we lose? What are the options at that point? Well, first of all, you bring up a school choice. That was a political decision that was made by people outside of Cardinal Maida. That was a political decision that was made, I think, by, uh, I forgot who the individual was, that he wanted to have school's choice uh, statute in a certain way. Yeah. Others thought that maybe you should get a income tax deduction or a tax break for okay. school choice. So I don't think that's a good analogy. I think the good analogy is this. Okay. Dr. Nathanson, the most outrageous abortionist, he admitted to 75,000 abortions. He ultimately became pro-life. And one day he was addressing the priests, and he said to them, you know, you could have stopped abortion and you could have stopped Roe v. Wade if you had spoken out. But you kept quiet and we were able to take over the media and we were able to influence the courts. So I really have faith that if the bishops stand fast on the HHS mandate, we will win. We have to win or our country is going to disintegrate. Your children or your grandchildren are not going to be able to live in a free society. Would you say that if they don't stay firm on this, that we can expect to see the Catholic Church deteriorate in the United States? Well, first of all, I don't think there's an option on that. They have set the line. I agree. They said there's going to be civil disobedience. Right. I expect them to have civil disobedience. Cardinal George said a few years ago, I'm going to die in my bed. My successor is going to die in prison. His successor is going to be a martyr. They are ready to do that. They are sounding the clarion call. You know, there's that verse someplace, who shall prepare for battle at the sound of an uncertain trumpet? We have a certain trumpet now. The bishops have spoken. All we have to show is that we support them and we're ready to fight for them. And so I, I don't think there is a choice there. I, I just, uh, I, I agree. There's no, this is going to be fought to the end. I don't think the bishops are going to back down on it. By the way, I talked to Cardinal George about that illustration just a few weeks ago, in fact. There's a fourth instance there. He's going to die in his bed. His successor is going to die in prison. His successor is going to die a martyr. And his successor is going to die rebuilding the culture. And that's where I thought Jerry was. So, I mean, that's, but I, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure I see that much disagreement here well, in I principle hope not. at yeah, all. I hope not. I think we're looking at the circumstances. But I, you ought to be absolutely delighted that this is the caliber of lay discussion that we've got. Can I say something here? Yeah, please. I see, these, I, I see these nuns in habits right here. They are the future. They're the future because they are educating our children. Okay? Uh, they're the Dominican sisters, Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. There was a Supreme Court case 
that talk about Catholic education, and that's one of the things we have to talk about. You know, the other side has taken over our school systems. It's become an indoctrination center. At one point, here's what somebody said. I should be surprised if any Catholic would deny that the parochial school is a vital, if not the most vital part of the Roman Catholic Church. If put to the choice, that venerable institution, I should suspect, would forego its whole service for mature persons before it would give up education of the young, and it would be a wise choice. Its growth and cohesion, discipline, and loyalty spring from its schools. Catholic education is a rock on which the whole structure rests. And then he went on. That was a Supreme Court justice saying that in a case. Okay. We have hope as long as we have an educational system that is going to bring our young kids up in a Catholic education, knowing the catechism of the church. And so that's the other issue, Professor Bradley. We've got young people lined up on fire with the faith. We just have to increase that. And I would ask the bishops to, instead of closing down schools, starting to open up more schools and also make it more affordable for Catholics who are supposed to have children and who are supposed to educate them in the Catholic faith so they can do that. You know, I did. If I end on this, you know, there's tremendous hope out there. I know that, you know, Professor Bradley had mentioned that, uh, you know, my wife and I have been blessed to have 12 children. And uh, as I like to say, all of them are boys except for 10. (laughs) (laughs) And and so the motto of my home is, blessed are you among women. But the point is, when, we're, when we are out, even, even in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right, the belly of the beast, people recognize that. They recognize God's grace in there. And I can't tell you how many people come up to me and they say, are you Catholic? Yeah. But what a tremendous witness. And the fact that they realize that. And they realize that is a good. I mean, there is tremendous hope out there. Don't believe the media. Don't believe the secular elite. There is tremendous hope out there. I look out here, 700 plus people on a Saturday afternoon. That tells me something. That tells me something. There's tremendous hope out there. You know it's getting bad when they start to say, well, are you Mormon? (laughs) (laughs) Then you know you got trouble. Yeah, we're mostly the Catholics. We're limited here time-wise. You guys are great. Let me get a quick uh, response on this. Uh, it sounded, uh, Jerry, that in, as you were, you know, musing about the future here, that we may well see a redefinition, religious liberty being transformed or reduced to a so-called freedom of worship. In your estimation, is that likely to happen? It's already happening insofar as the, the meaning of the exemption, which is too limited in the mandate situation, uh, the exemption that's created in this Illinois bill that I referred to, the same-sex marriage bill, you can see that opinion in a substantial sector of our society, including the Obama administration, is coalescing around that view, that religious freedom really pertains to what happens within the church, maybe within the parish, but it has to do with the relationships and the speech among the already converted. That's it. But they would say something like this. But when you go out into the commercial world and the, the public sphere, um, you can't expect to be able to do what you want to do. You have to compromise. So what's diminished in value, surprisingly, so much, even in the last 20 years, is understanding of and respect for 
what I call discipleship earlier. But I think that one thing that's happening to us is that generally as a society, there's just less and less value placed upon living a life of wholeness and integrity. And someone like, let's say, say Thomas More, right? Just saying, I won't do that, even though, in Thomas More's case, you could see there are a lot of bad consequences to becoming a martyr. I mean, his family. Thomas, think of all the good you could have done for the poor people of England, which you're not going to do if you're dead. Yeah, all you had to do was say yes. All you had to do was say yes. I think the view that prizes that as a witness of insurpassable value is in our rearview mirror, I'm sad to say. Okay. Dick, do you think we're going to have that redefinition in this country from religious liberty think, to freedom uh, of worship? I think they're trying to do that. Yeah. I think that's what they're trying to do. I think that's what they're trying to do. And that's what the too. church is saying. Wait a minute. We're more than what's within the four walls. We have all these ministries. That's a part of the Christian mission, and that's a part of the Catholic mission. So they're trying to do that. We're fighting back. Ultimately, we're going to win. Rob? I agree. And the other component of this where ever since the Smith case came down, where they talk about neutral laws of general applicability, which was written by Scalia, which undermined uh, quite a bit the religious exercise rights, where we're finding that we can still have a great deal of attraction is when we tie those right to free exercise with the right to freedom of speech. So the right to evangelize, the right to express God's word, there's still a a great deal of strength in in terms of uh, vitality in the First Amendment to protect that. But certainly, I think we're seeing a slow erosion of the free exercise. And, and the way to do it is, you know, as Mr. Thompson and I are doing, fighting in court and, and changing that trend. And, right. I, and I'm hopeful that we will. Yeah, very good. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to end it there. But I want to say again for lay people, this this is the issue of the future. It has to do with defining what it means to be a Catholic and whether being a Catholic means that you are act out of a robust discipleship in all areas of life or if you become just a uh, religious contemplative which stays within your own chosen boundaries. For laity, that's simply unacceptable. We don't take vows of stability like that. We have never seen anything like this before in our history. You take a look at every social crisis in our history, it's almost always lay people who are out there, whether you're talking about slavery, you're talking about prohibition, you're talking about communism, you're talking about civil rights, you're talking about abortion. It's lay people from various traditions who are out there doing what they're supposed to do. This definition changes constitutional protections in those areas. We'll have to end it there, though. Guys, thank you so much. I wish we had more time. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we listen to Session 3 of Ave Maria Radio's first conference, Catholic Witness in a Nation Divided. The topic of this session was Religious Liberty. Our speaker was Notre Dame School of Law's Professor Gerard Bradley. The panelists were Al Cresta, Dick Thompson, and Rob Muse. In future weeks, we'll have more talks and panels from this conference. Our talks for putting on the mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks are recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 459. A complete CD set or an MP3 can also be ordered. To place your order for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener-supported. 
If you like what is offered here, we ask that you support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.